much better when you have a local fund people who've been on the ground. There is absolutely no reason that our ecosystem won't follow the same trajectory as every other market in the world. We want the entire ecosystem to be successful, to showcase to the world that you can make money in Africa in tech. That's Getha Waithaka, Lexi Novitsky, and Natalie Colby, general partners of the $205 million growth stage fund, Norskin 22. In this episode, we'll hear from the partners about investment strategy. Valuation is very important. I think you need to be very cognizant of exuberance. We'll talk about goals. I think for me, it's building markets that didn't otherwise exist. And we'll talk about the biggest question facing the African tech ecosystem today. It's probably one of the number one questions that we debate. You just closed $205 million round to you know, fill that funding gap in, in the growth stage, as we've heard so much about. So Natalie, can you talk a little bit about that fundraise? I know reading about it, there was a first close that seemed to be more sort of family offices, the network of you know Nicholas and, and Hans and a lot of the unicorn board founders from Scandinavia, as well as from the continent. And then the second close, it seemed to be a lot more of the, the DFIs. So can you talk about how this $205 million came together and the behind the scenes of um, what you guys did to, to get to this final close? Yeah, sure, Justin. I mean, look, as, as you mentioned, the, the, the first close was mainly from Hans and Nicholas's network and the unicorn board. So these are, these are founders who have built billion dollar you know, unicorn businesses in other parts of the world, mainly Sweden, because that's obviously where Hans and Nicholas are from. And they saw an opportunity to, to back entrepreneurs in Africa and also to bring their experience and their learnings from what they've done in the developed world and to help African entrepreneurs. So that was the, the, the first close. And we closed that in, in January of 2022 with $110 million. And then, as you said, the second round was more institutions. So some DFIs, Standard Bank came in, into that round. Um, and then now with our final close, we've had more institutions that have come into, into this round as well. Some more family offices, some more individuals to get to 205 million. And Lexi, I remember you and I had breakfast in Cape Town in the middle of fundraising. And in the ecosystem, we talk a lot about the role of DFIs and the challenge of raising from DFIs in particular with you know, their sort of impact mandates and, and different things like that. And I remember you telling me a bit about the benefit that you guys had having such a you know pool of, I think, family offices to start with, and it made it a little bit easier to fundraise. Maybe you can expand a little bit more on the the sort of strategy of starting with with the, the entrepreneurs and then going to the DFIs afterwards. Yeah, well, I think that there were a couple positive advantages, and then I'll invite um, Natalie and Gaitha to pitch in here as well. But you know, having the momentum of doing that first close with these, not just family offices, but entrepreneurs who were also quite successful themselves and understood technology brought a lot of weight to what we were trying to achieve on, on the continent. You know, they wanted a connection with the African continent and they wanted to be involved not only with their capital, but also to provide value add to a lot of the companies that we were backing. What was also very helpful is I think having that first close and, and setting terms with a lot of these very commercially oriented investors. Some of the DFIs, by the way, I think align very closely with our commercial mandate. And, and those are really the ones that ended up coming into the fund. But yes, you're right. That that certainly helped on the later stages of some of those DFI LPs. So Getha, maybe can you talk a little bit about these funding gaps and you coming from growth stage in particular, what you saw and why Norskin's $205 million is a really big deal in terms of plugging a big hole in the ecosystem and you know the role of local capital and you know, the way in which you're able to support your 
uh, companies um, at the later stages with with this fund size that you have? So as Lexi said, you know, there is actually availability of capital in the early stage. There's actually some great angel networks that have been set up on the African continent, and they've provided good capital for businesses as they start getting going, really looking to plug a big gap. And there's a lot of entrepreneurs who are doing fantastic job at that level. And then if you look further afield, in more developed businesses, there's actually a lot of private equity funding. So, you know, there have obviously been some, you know, very big private equity funds that have been raised on the African continent over many years. We obviously came from one. And at that level, there was, you know, enough capital to support businesses. But where we saw more of a gap is in that growth stage. Call it series A, B, C, where you found funds on the African continent. There were some, but they didn't have deep pools of capital. So they got to a stage where they stopped following on to building uh, these businesses to the next level they wanted to get to. So that's why we're excited. We're excited that we've got this deep pool of capital. We can support the businesses over multiple funding rounds. And we come from a background that I'd say really wants to roll up their sleeves. We want to make sure that we are the partner of choice for these businesses and we'll you know, help them should they need to hire a CFO. It's much better when you have a local fund, people who've been on the ground. And then you know, the second one is some of these businesses, when they think of where they're going to expand next, they think about the beacon economies of the continent. They think about how do I get to Nigeria and tap that large market? How do I get to South Africa? Well, I've got very experienced partners here who've built very strong networks there. So look, I think it's, it's a multiplicity of areas where you know, we provide not just capital, but you know, strong networks and have been doing this for a very long time. Yep. Yeah, Lexi, so to expand on that a little bit, can you talk about maybe beyond capital, what Series A and later stage founders need and you know the role, maybe this is where we can talk a little bit about the Unicorn Advisory Board as well, the, the role of being a, a value-add investor beyond just capital? Yeah. So, I mean, the Series A and beyond investors are already pretty mature founders. I mean, they understand their customer. They're at this point running a pretty sizable team. So it's not like we're directly operationally involved, but we certainly will be that year for strategy when they're having you know, tough decisions to be made can certainly be the other side of that that they can bounce ideas off of and, and probably also challenge them on a lot of these things. I think importantly, you know, what is key for our unicorn board is that they've faced a lot of these challenges themselves. I mean, building a scalable business in payments in Europe, although a very different ecosystem probably has very similar challenges as you're doing it in Africa from the start all the way to scale and, you know, building a billion dollar company. Everything from economics matter to building and governance systems to regulation and then ultimately planning for an exit. And I think that's also not only where the operating partners around this table can, can help support, but also the unicorn board. We also probably quite importantly are an ear to the ground of just what's happening in the ecosystem. You know, if we're looking at the supply chain ecosystem, we kind of have a top level approach where we we're talking to many companies who might be their clients. We're understanding the situation with currency and also being able to be there almost as a member of the team to be able to, to relay a lot of this information back to our founders. I think that's super key. I mean, we're also paying a huge amount of attention to governance now. But Natalie and Gaith, I mean, have a lot of experience with that from bringing companies to the earlier stages all the way 
to exit and building in these systems and processes that are necessary for that. We'll get to governance a, a little bit more, but I think before we do, you know, there's, of course, as we just said, the, the, the intangibles, but then there's there's the capital. And again, this is a environment with a bit of a capital scarcity, particularly from a late stage perspective. So Natalie, can you speak maybe a little bit to portfolio construction as well? I know that you've got a tranche of money that's for new deals and for the earlier stage, but then perhaps equally, if not more importantly, you've got a tranche of money for follow-on for your existing portfolio. So um, can you talk about the sort of value then to the portfolio in, in constructing in that way and why you decided to, to set up the fund in the way that you did? So Justin, the way we've set the fund up is that half the capital will, will be used to build the, the portfolio out. And we're going to build out to probably about 20 companies, maybe a few less, maybe a few more, but around about 20 companies. So that first kind of call it $100 million will be used to build the portfolio out. And then the rest of it is reserved for follow-ons. So the, the idea would be that most of the capital in the early stages of the fund is likely to go more into the A, A and the B rounds. And then as we follow on and into those B and C rounds, that the fund will then you know, likely end up with more capital in the B and C rounds through that pool that we've reserved for the winners. And we'll really be doubling down on those companies that are meeting their forecasts or, or, you know, or doing better than what they, they said they would. And Geitha, from an a investment um, decision-making perspective, I'm curious to know your perspective. You guys have made five deals already. Your perspectives on how you actually make decisions. What are you looking for in, in founders, especially at the later stages? What are you looking for in terms of traction or, or metrics? And I think there's also a question about valuations in there that I think is, is a little bit more specific than you know the early stage you know valuation vibes that, that we get you know in pre-seed and seed. So can you talk a little bit more about how you're approaching all of that? So... When it comes to what we're looking for, it is very industry specific. Yeah, So we do not want to go into a specific industry and say, we want to make sure that you have 10 million customers or you have only $2 million of revenue. We want to make sure that we understand the sector well enough, understand the size of the addressable market, see what product market fit really feels like, and then understand what risks you're taking. And then we all sit in a room as uh, an investment committee and have some very rigorous debate, yeah? I think our backgrounds are great for that. Obviously, Natalie and I came back from a you know, later stage investing profile. Lexi coming from earlier stage. Hans, who you know has been in the industry in Europe for over 20 years. He's seen the businesses on the African continent as they grow to become like they are in Europe. And then Niklas, who's a founder. And his perspective is great because he's thinking about what does this business need? Does it need a CIO today? Does it need a CTO? And what skill set do they require? So, look, I'd say the people in the room have been great. There's, you know, an attention to not ever apply groupthink, ever bring a very specific idea to the table, and we can use that to to, to go forward. Yeah? Justin, also, if I yeah. can back that process up a little bit. So the sorts of businesses that we're looking at are really these asset light, lean tech sort of models. So software is marketplaces, that sort of thing. And when we, you know, look, start looking at a space, what we do is we, we map out the entire ecosystem. So, for example, if we're looking at FMCG supply chain companies, we mapping out this entire vertical, debating on what sort of aspects matter to us. Is it, do we think that they have to backward integrate with owning warehouses and logistics companies? Is it important that they have lots of access to capital to be able to on-lend? What is really key? Is it matter who their core customer is? And we'll debate all of this internally um, and map the ecosystem. And within that, you know, get to know what we think are the top couple of players in the growth stage across the continent. And that's kind of how we 
very, I would say, logically make an investment, not decision, but turn our resources towards the company that we really want to attack as our core investment target, even if at that point they're not raising a round of capital. Uh, but we'll have them in our line site when we're building out that relationship, hopefully even supporting them when they come to market. So we we have a, a great relationship and are able to step in and hopefully be a, a lead on that round. Yeah. So a much more proactive development of the pipeline than just waiting around for when companies need capital. Yeah, definitely. To your point, there's not that many deals for you to choose from, especially at Series B and and later in, in the markets in question as well. Yeah, it's still a pretty small market. I mean, there are probably a handful of companies that we think can become billion-dollar companies, even within the same vertical. So it's not like we're always saying we're making this decision and we don't think others will win, but we're, with the information we have, taking the best bet on where we think the, the capital will be most efficiently used. And why this focus on asset light marketplaces? I, I know, especially for Natalie and, and Geitha, Geitha, you you two coming from a private equity background, I think that um, that's a little bit different, obviously, than than the growth stage. And we talk a lot about what is the infrastructure that is needed to actually solve problems in the markets in question. So, can you guys talk a little bit more about why is this the the focus? Obviously, asset light being more scalable, but how have you had to balance that sort of um, question, especially from a capital allocation perspective? If I look at what we did in private equity, I'd say, you know, bricks and mortar took way too long to scale. Yeah, first, you know, I'll give you an example. We invested in in restaurants. You have to find the location. You have to find the licenses. You have to build it out, and you have to. Every day, open up and make sure that people will come want, you know, fast, reliable service and good food. Yeah. So that's one bucket. The other bucket I'd put as, you know, businesses that needed funding. Yeah. So if a business was lending to a group of people, most times they were probably either getting deposit finance or wholesale funding. Sometimes wholesale funding markets are completely shut. So, you know, your destiny sits at times not in your own hands. And that is what I found super exciting about tech investing. And as I said, when we invested in Far Red Actis, you know, here is a business that was literally just taking advantage of the fact that, you know, a large population of Egyptians are underbanked and they line up to pay for their utility bills. So using tech integration, which, you know, they had worked on for a very long period of time, they were able to scale very rapidly by providing a very quick solution. So uh, in, in my perspective, that's why the risk the risk adjusted returns are just so much better in tech because we'd seen just how long it took to create these businesses in private equity and so exit horizons were just way too long. Yeah. Yeah. How do you also think about that multi market scale question? I think there's a lot of discourse that we've seen around. Well, um, do you want to stay in your home market? Is Nigeria big enough? Is even South Africa big enough? Versus the inherent complexity of going multi market and balancing that with, I suppose, the um, expectations that you as an investor have for certain amounts of scale and you know going multi-market that allows to achieve a certain amount of scale how, how have you advised some of your companies on approaching that situation look i'd say you know <clears throat> my experience international expansion is risky so you have to be sure that you have conquered your whole market first or where you've developed product market fit first so you know that conversation with a founder needs to be very mature about why are we going into another market, yeah? I'll give you an example. So we've invested in a business called AutoCheck. AutoCheck is probably the largest online marketplace for used cars in Sub-Saharan Africa, yeah? And what we chose to do in conjunction with the founder is go into other markets quite rapidly. 
And the reason is that we've seen this model applied in many other countries. Um, you know, there's great marketplaces that exist in the US, in Europe, Latin America, and India. And what we noticed was if we don't go after the market opportunity first, others will conquer it because, you know, the application of the tech tools and the solution is very applicable in these other markets. So the business started in Nigeria, went to Kenya very quickly, and then expanded into Francophone West Africa, Egypt, Morocco, and now thinking about South Africa. And it's not because that the whole markets don't have enough scale. It's that you want to make sure that you are capturing the opportunity very rapidly because you can see product market fit in each one of these markets and you can see other founders considering going into these markets. Yeah. I think it also depends yeah. a lot on the, the business model specifically. Um, and a lot of these businesses, uh, speed and size absolutely matters because network effects is how you really get to that unit economics profitably. A market like Nigeria or South Africa can absolutely be a big enough market depending on the sector that you're tackling. And in a lot of cases, dominating in just that one market by itself is how you're going to win. And be very cognizant of when you expand, um, you know, and treat it almost like a, a whole nother business center. If you're a payments company or maybe a credit company, maybe there's just a couple of things that you need in a market to expand. You need to be able to identify the user yeah. and have the rails for a transaction to go through. But if you're relying on some of these network effects within a market, then maybe it'll take you many years before you expand to another market if you're thinking about the strategy, right? I was going to say to, to add to this point around expanding into other markets, expanding into other markets doesn't necessarily have to be greenfield. And I think that's where a lot of exit opportunity can happen for earlier stage companies. And certainly, I mean, we saw with AutoCheck, they did do some of that expansion into other markets was through, through acquisitions. What is happening in some of these, particularly in the marketplaces, you've got businesses that are starting in Nigeria, that are starting in South Africa, and that are starting in Kenya. They're all looking to move into those markets. They're going to start bumping up against each other. And what you'll likely see, and we're starting to see it, but it's happening in the earlier stages, is that those businesses will start to consolidate and create a, an African tech giant in that space. And I think that's probably what's on the horizon in the you know, medium to long term. Just doubling back to the question on fund thesis, you know, Natalie, one thing that I think is particularly interesting about how you guys are set up as well is that you have you know, on the ground presence, I suppose, in three of the four corners, right? Nigeria, South Africa, and, and Kenya and East Africa. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, as it relates to the fund thesis, this focus on demographics, and maybe we can then dive a little bit deeper also into to business models and, and other questions for what you're looking out for um, within the fund thesis question? There's three mega trends that we're looking to invest behind on, on the African continent. I mean, firstly, is, is, is a very young demographic. We have the youngest population in the world. And if you have a look at what's going to happen over the next 20 to 25 years, Africa will add about 800 million people to the working age population. We will basically be the workforce of the world, will come from this continent. And they are young. So these, these are youngsters. These are people below the age of 25. If anyone's got a child or a teenager, you'll know like they're completely connected to their mobile phone and they're doing everything on a mobile phone. So they feel very comfortable with digital products and services. And these are the, the kinds of businesses that we're looking to invest behind that are exactly that, that are providing digital products and services. So you've got this massive demographic of young people that are going to be coming into the working age population that are going to be driving tech-enabled businesses on the continent. So that's that's demographic one. The, the second mega trend that, that we invest behind is investment into, into digital infrastructure. I mean, if you have a look at Africa, at what is available, um, most of Africa still runs on 3G and less. So, and we can all see, you know, there's most apps and, you know, 
the loading of, of, of web pages take a long time, et cetera. It's, it's, it's frustrating to work on 3G. That, that is changing. There's a lot of investment that is going into digital infrastructure. And as that moves to a 4G, 5G environment, you're going to see a lot of uptake and adoption of digital products and services, again, which is going to drive this, um, the businesses that we're investing behind. On that point as well, if you look at the mobile phone, of Africans that have mobile phones, only half have a smartphone. The other half are still on feature phones. And if we think back to the time when, when we had feature phones, if any of us have, can even remember that far back, you, there's not much you can do with a feature phone. So as that adoption scales, and it is scaling every year, more and more people are using smartphones, there's a whole world of digital adoption that, that opens up. So that's a, the second big trend. The third big trend is urbanization. So Africa historically has been a commodity and, and agricultural driven um, continent. A lot of Africans are moving to the cities and that creates a density around the city where you can scale. So as the populations are moving into the cities, they're needing financial services, they're needing healthcare, they're needing access to markets. And again, if, if you, you're able to provide that in a very quick and scalable way through these digital products and services. So th those are really the three mega trends that we're investing behind um, ac across the continent. Githa, you want to expand on that a little bit? I'll probably jump into, you know, as Natalie said, there's, there's certain sectors that we will find more interesting than others. Uh, the first is fintech. Um, you know, we still believe that the financial services infrastructure on the continent is still not sufficiently developed. Obviously, payments has run quite ahead, but now we're talking about embedded finance. We're talking about insurtech. These are business models that we really are getting excited behind. Uh, the second one is market enablement. And market enablement we use is a you know, pretty big bucket of, of, of business models. And I'd say it's these businesses that break down the barriers of doing trade on our continent. So think about logistics networks, think about marketplaces, think about supply chain businesses, the CFO stack. Um, so that's that's a pretty big business bucket that we're very excited behind. Um, and then the last two are med tech uh, and, and uh, ed tech. And, and those two are largely because you can't build schools and hospitals fast enough on the continent and there will be opportunities to leapfrog. As Natalie said, as more and more people get access to smart devices, then you can accelerate the provision of either telemedicine or some curriculum on the cell phone. So those are, you know, the four sectors that uh, we are super excited about. Lexi, thinking, you know, a bit longer term and, and farther afield as well, you know, Get that just talked a little bit about leapfrogging, right? And I think that there's this proverbial question about building for where the market is today versus obviously very young population and, and obviously a lot of nascent technology out there to, to solve problems and, and new and innovative ways. So um, what are you thinking about and what are you looking at, you know, over a longer term horizon as well? So I, th I think that there are certainly um, two big trends that we're, we're following or, or things that we're very excited about over the longer term. Look, we don't know which way these will play out, but I, I can assure you that both will be extremely meaningful in the life of our fund. The first is AI has an incredible role to play in the uh, problems that African businesses are trying to, to solve. Look, you can absolutely build, I think, an AI-only company on the African continent that is solving a problem set that is needed but for a local company that an international company might not have the data sets necessarily to solve as easily as a local company. But even beyond that, I think every company that we are investing in is using AI as part of their product stack already today. Um, you know, these are models for decision-making and, you know, and 
identifying problems in complex supply chains. They're utilizing machine vision for fraud prevention. They're using intelligent pricing models. They're using uh, natural uh, natural language bots to be able to communicate with their customers, even though you know we know that there's over a thousand languages on the African continent. So bringing a lot of those fragmented markets together with the tools of AI, I think, can be hugely meaningful. So that's certainly a, a massive trend that we're, we're watching. And, you know, how can data sets that a lot of these companies have built internally, how can they be leveraged to really drive a lot of that growth in their own models and potentially build future products? The second, in which I'm very excited about, is I, I have an incredible amount of optimism for the Nigerian market, the biggest market in Africa, I, which I think has long been suffering uh, a hangover from some bad monetary policy decisions. And what that's meant for what we're facing now over the past couple months has certainly been a volatile currency. But I am quite optimistic because I think the new administration coming in has made a lot of quick changes and it has shown their willingness to act to support um, the currency um, as well as, you know, been able to arrange a lot of uh, availability of, of dollar to, to really defend that currency. But even more importantly, when it comes to tech, I think that they have also put forward a very ambitious program to help support education within the tech sector, as well as promote a lot of the infrastructure build out that Natalie mentioned is hugely important and also conducive regulatory policies to help not only protect consumers, but, but really spur a lot of the innovation in the tech sector. And even, you know, readdressing some of those regulation policies that were put in place under previous administrations to try to make these sectors much more uh, flexible and promote innovation. This episode of The Flip is sponsored by Onafreak, formerly MFS Africa. Onafreak is the leading real-time payments network for Africa, which connects over 500 million mobile wallets across over 1,300 cross-border corridors and in over 40 countries across the African continent. Throughout this season, we'll hear from the Onafreak team about their work to create a borderless world. In this episode, we're joined by Mkolisim Sutwana, the Chief Operating Officer of Baxi, the Nigerian agent network acquired by Onafreak in 2021. Baxi is an agency business based in Nigeria. And Baxi is quite key in this respect that it bridges the gap in allowing people to be able to perform services like deposits, transfers, and cash withdrawals from their bank accounts through our agent. The traditional expansion that we've had is we've been connecting mobile money operators together, the Nigeria story is quite different in that agency banking and agent networks in Nigeria are very embedded in the financial services in that country. So the strength of banks in Nigeria allows us to be able to offer services that traditionally were not available to Nigerian consumers. So one of the interesting opportunities looking at is really opening up China to Nigeria. A lot of the SMEs, the merchants, the businesses buy their, their goods and, and services from China. The market is there, the business has already been doing, but there's quite a, a lot of friction in the process of doing that. We're able to offer an interesting use case for Chinese suppliers to be able to access the Nigerian market in a more frictionless way, more secure way, more compliant way. And for Nigerian businesses, it actually then opens up an entire Chinese market 
beyond suppliers that they've been using traditionally. We've talked a lot about fintech consolidation as well. I think it's interesting in the context of like market cycles and we're in this so-called you know market downturn and the cost of capital is higher and there's questions about you know distressed assets versus you know doing capital intensive things when capital is cheap and can you say a little bit more maybe also about where we are today from a market perspective and how that may influence a lot of these questions that we're talking about so i think what we saw over the past couple of years is there was you know a lot of risk taking there was a lot of easy cheap capital um, and investors you know there was a lot more to gain from spring capital hoping that that momentum continued but i think we're now you know certainly facing the hangover from that i don't disagree that capital and momentum really builds big scale and you need that very quickly to become a winning force in some of these markets for some of the best companies i don't think that that will completely go away, even in this market downturn. I do think what's happening with the best companies in the ecosystem is, given the point we are in their cycle, they're building optionality into their company. They're building in systems and processes that say, look, we can we can be profitable today, but when the capital starts to come back and we have visibility on it, we can turn on this engine and really scale up. And at the same time, you know, looking for some of these very strategic acquisitions that would be accretive to their platform, adding on a technology that they would otherwise have to build internally that would cost some resources they can now acquire for, you know, a reasonable amount of money or even market expansion, you know, finding another partner that has the same ethos that they do and merging these two companies together to more efficiently run the platform. I think that'll continue for another year or so, probably longer. And I think in Nigeria, actually, we're we're still very early into that correction cycle. Uh, a lot of the the founders, I think, had an incredible amount of optimism and, and still do that this market will come back in a couple of months and are out willing to go out into the market and fundraise at you know kind of lower valuations than they expected given previous market highs. But that's slowly starting to adjust. So Africa, you know, is typically a laggard. It's been a, it's been a laggard in terms of the capital going in, and I think it's still a laggard in kind of that capital correction. And we still have a little bit more pain to be felt in, in the ecosystem overall. Maybe if we zoom out a little bit, Geith, I'll, I'll, I'll come to you. Lexi talked a little bit earlier about sort of doing a market mapping exercise. And you talked about, you know, the investment decisioning and, and some of the heuristics that you guys use to, to make investments. What is top of mind today from a trends perspective um, when you guys look at the market and, and you see what's happening um, with your sort of depth of understanding, what sorts of things are you thinking about? And does that sort of map to the sort of deals that we're going to expect you guys to make, you know, in, in the next, I suppose, you know, six to 12 months? I'd mentioned two things. Valuation is very important. I think in, in this environment, especially, I think you need to be very cognizant of exuberance. Yeah. So founders will always be exuberant on their numbers and their potential and what they can achieve. And we just want to make sure that we understand the size of the market its growth, how the product makes a difference and where the business gets to over the medium to long term. And that's you know, how we think about valuation. Then you think about what is a long run average exit multiple. So we think about exit and valuation a lot. And then it comes back to what your entry multiple should be. So I'd say in this environment, that's probably the most important thing. If I zoom out a little bit more in just in terms of what are the sectors that excite me? Embedded finance has to be number one. Just watching, um, you know, businesses uh, bring financial services utility on their tech platforms, I think is amazing. Uh, they're using a lot of data that we've collected over a period of time. 
and using that as a competitive advantage. You know, they're able to provide better customer service, turnaround time, and I think that will only continue. And I just hope the regulation, you know, keeps up just to make sure that, you know, not only does it drive financial inclusion, but, you know, it also drives a lot of innovation in business models, yeah? And maybe I can add another yeah. another subsector that we're also quite excited about. We are very excited around the B2B payment space. And there's lots of different verticals in this. I think that there has been a lot of attitude of the market that payments has already been done. It's a saturated market. But we actually see an incredible opportunity on the B2B side. And that's from, you know, local businesses trying to bulk pay their workers to paying suppliers in their ecosystem to even transacting across borders. And there is a lot of friction in this space. I think differently to the consumer payment space, a lot of these customers, although they might be longer to acquire, are very sticky. And they once they're on a platform, they really scale up and they continue to use more and more services on those platforms. And the, the market over across the African continent is, is massive as well. One and a half trillion dollars in sub-Saharan Africa, and only 25% of those are digital today. And those digital payments, by the way, are usually a CFO going into the bank and asking their bank to execute a wire for them. So it's a massive opportunity that is hugely untapped. And, and we're quite, quite excited about that space as well. And Natalie, I know one other thing that is top of mind, and if we kind of look at trends in the ecosystem, there's been, I think, some high profile issues in, in governance. And you guys mentioned a little bit earlier that you're thinking as a fund a lot about governance, and especially as your founders grow and, and their companies grow and move from Series A and beyond, that becomes increasingly more important. So can you say a little bit more about um, the fund's focus on governance and what sorts of lessons you're trying to instill and what sorts of things founders need to learn and so on. Justin, this is, I mean, this is a, a big part of um, of the focus that we bring to to companies. I mean, there's there's nothing quicker than a bad headline that can absolutely sink a company. And this is something that we we kind of, you know, talk to founders about. You know, obviously the markets can be difficult. The revenue, you might not meet your revenue targets. Your margins might be under pressure. And that's something that you can kind of deal with in time. But if you have a bad headline, you know, that, that there's a governance issue within the business, that can just shut the whole company down. Like people won't want to fund it. Your clients will move away from you. Your employees will leave. So it's it's super important to make sure that the governance is right. I know it's a really boring topic. And when we bring it up, people kind of roll their eyes. But it is the one thing that can basically, you know, it's like a hand grenade that you can bomb into the company and the whole thing blows up. So it it, it is a big focus of ours. I mean, I think, again, the way that we approach this is, is alignment with the founder and with the management team and really to understand what their ethos is and how their approach and, and their headspace around this is. If the founder is very kind of fly by night, you know, wants to cut corners, et cetera, we're going to be less excited about investing behind a founder like that. But if the founder takes this seriously and wants to learn, and obviously we can bring a lot of knowledge and a lot of help and, and bring the systems and processes and policies and all those boring things that people don't really want to do, we can help with that as, a, as an investor. Um, if they they saying, look, we need this and, and please do, you know, we, we can do it the help then you know th that's an open door that we can then work with but no it is something that we that we very focused on and we saw it when when we were in private equity you know it's if you are looking to exit whether it's through an IPO or, or in, into a big international investor if they look at governance you know how is the company run how is the board structured what are your board minutes is, are the board meetings on time is there a remco I mean, you know there's there's a lot of structure that they look at and and if it's a quick tick box to go okay that's all good now let's focus on the on the you know on, on the commercials if they're spending a lot of time on that, it can disrupt the process and it actually you know, creates a lot of friction in an exit process. So it's a good thing to focus on throughout the, the company life. You don't want to have that, that, that hand grenade. But at the exit, that's when the, the light is really shone on it. 
That's a perfect segue maybe for us to talk about exits. I think that 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 is always the biggest question that we talk about in the African tech ecosystem is where the exits going to come from? Who are they going to come from? When are they going to come? Githa, you talked a little bit about entry and exit, um, you know, multiples, those, those sorts of questions. So I think I'll start with you. What is your perspective and what is your role as an investor to think about exits and to help your founders think about exits as well? Yeah, I, I think every investment journey should, you know, go hand in hand with how the investor will curate an exit or help deliver an exit. So how we've been thinking about it is, you know, the type of companies we want to invest in, we want them to be, you know, really strategically important that anybody who wants to come into the African market, this is the company they want to invest in. So that's that's the first way we think about exit. The second is the consolidation we talked about. I think you'll find, you know, let me pick a sector such as fintech. You'll find some of the African banks will, you know, scratch around their strategy and think we need to be more digitally enabled and then want to acquire fast growing fintech companies. So there will be uh, some local strategics that go out there. IPOs are there, you know, markets open and close. Um, we've been fortunate, Natalie and I were involved in IPO of Alexander Forbes many years ago in South Africa, and then also the IPO of Fowry in Egypt. And so we've we've walked that journey, and it involves a lot of governance and a lot of thinking about how the market will digest an IPO story. So I'd say those are the three ways we think about exit. But I come back to my first point. As an investor, you have to have an idea of why this is strategically important and who will pay um, a premium for it and curate in that direction. So, Justin, I think this conversation over the past 10 years has shifted to a traditional market. Nobody will innovate and build scalable tech companies to there's no early stage investors to support these early stage tech companies. So they won't get anywhere to now there's no growth capital to support the early stage companies. So the early stage investors won't get their returns. Then at that point, there'll be no no unicorns. Africa can never have unicorns. And I think yeah. it's the same conversation around exits. There is absolutely no reason that our ecosystem, our market in Africa won't follow the same trajectory as every other market in the world and be able to realize great exits to massive strategic partners that want to enter the biggest untapped economy in the world. So I think often when I get asked this exit question, I just say patience, right? That seems to generally be the answer, but even if it's an unsatisfactory one. Patience within a fun life. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you about the, the fun life, but but maybe before I do, Natalie, how do you think about this exit question? I mean, it's it's probably one of the number one questions that we we d debate at our investment committee. I think this is, you know, with Gether and I coming from the private equity world where, you know, exit is something that you're having to exit, a strategic exit in every private equity deal. As opposed to, you know, when you're investing early stage, you can, if you're an A round, you can, you can exit to the B round investors, to the C round investors. But at some point, that runway stops and you're now exiting to a strategic investor. So, you know, we've seen some amazing companies that have got amazing founders, amazing growth, but we cannot see who the exit is. We've looked around. We can't see who the exit is, or if we can see who the exit is, we can't see them paying the valuation that's being asked. We respectively have to have to decline that investment. So it's something that we spend a lot of time on is who is going to buy this and can they pay the price that is going to be on the table at, at, at the end of the four, five, six year period, whatever the, the length of, of time is. And then we discount that number back to, okay, what should we be paying for on, on day one? So the exit is, is a big conversation in, in the first instance that, you know, how are we going to exit this? But also it informs what we should be paying when we're entering the business. 
What about time horizons? Obviously, a closed-in fund has you know 10 years or, or whatever, but I think we've also talked a lot about, in the context of African markets, things taking longer. So how do you think about this time horizons question as well in the, within the confines of, of the fund structure that you have? I mean, the, the reality is we have the confines of the fund structure, so we need to make sure that we can exit within within that time limit. And, and obviously, it will inform how we construct the portfolio as time marches on. Obviously, now we, we're right at the beginning, so we have the luxury of 10 years ahead of us. But obviously, in year five or year six, you know, we'd be looking at, at the investment time, time horizon a lot more succinctly and making sure that any investments that we make at that stage, we can actually get out, you know, by the time we get to, to year 10. And when I spoke earlier about the fund construction, the way that we've, we've thought about constructing the fund plays out to that. So we're looking now to invest more in the earlier stages, so series A and B. But as we start getting into the later years, we'd be investing B and C and then stopping growing the portfolio and then looking to exit. What does success look like for the fund? Obviously, I think your investors have expectations of how much money they're going to get back, but maybe there's a separate sort of intangible question knowing the story of Norskin and the foundation and impact investing and Nicholas's mission about the role that these companies will have on the markets and the economies and the users in question. So I think there's a lot of different perspectives on what success could or should look like. I'm going to ask each of you. Natalie, do you want to go first? The fund has to be a commercial success for, for it to be a success. If, if it's a commercial success, it means that our investors who have put their money behind us, and it's a, it's a responsibility that, that we take incredibly seriously. People have given us their money to look after. We, we want to look after it, and we need to make a return on that. So the, the commercial success of the fund is important. It's important to our investors. It's important to us, obviously, as a team, because we need to make sure that we can then raise a second and a third fund. And it's, it's important to, to our, yeah. our portfolio companies. They want to be associated with a successful fund and also, you know, by definition, if we're successful, it means they have been successful. But I think probably more importantly, if you kind of take take a level up, having a commercially successful fund in Africa crowds in more capital. And we want to have more. Like we want the entire ecosystem to be successful, to showcase to the world that you can make money in Africa, in tech, and therefore crowd more money. And so for us, that's kind of the existential success factor. So the fund needs to be a, a commercial success. And that's something, you know, obviously that we that that's our job to do. I think um, the byproduct of a commercially successful fund, obviously, is successful companies that have solved problems for their users as well. Yeah. So I think for me, it's building markets that didn't otherwise exist, helping these founders build very large companies that ultimately serve the overall ecosystem by providing a service that encourages financial inclusion, that encourages businesses to be more efficient and profitable, that encourages people to have access to education or healthcare that otherwise didn't and building these these massive markets at, at scale where otherwise you know there would only be legacy systems that i think the majority of the population would actually be excluded from Githa, what do you think i'll bring it full circle i mean i you know started an investing career in the us and as much as i loved investing in mid market businesses in the us i could see there's huge opportunity on the african continent and so for me success looks like we're proving out this opportunity set and we've got the talent on the continent to invest in these businesses and the entrepreneurs to do it. And now we've solved another leg, which is the capital. So uh, to, me, to me, I think success is just making all this commercially successful, but also showing that, you know, African businesses can get to that next level. Yeah.